And we're in the middle of a short mini-series on spiritual warfare. And this morning, we're going to be looking specifically at the schemes and the snares of Satan. How is it that he thinks and how does he seek to destroy us? We've seen the last couple of weeks that the Word of God tells us what we need to know about him, that he's real, that he's roaming, and that he seeks someone to devour. It's easy to be sitting here and say, that's true. He is seeking people to devour and set your eyes on all the people out there. But remember, he is seeking to devour you as well and your family. Peter says to be sober and alert. And one thing I loved about the peace that you heard earlier, the Takata and the stillness that came afterwards is it was, it was other. It's not something you were used to. And sometimes as believers, we can simply get lulled into the, the motions of just moving through this life without really being sober and alert, without really being reminded how real he is, how much he wants to destroy us, but also forgetting how great our salvation is and how powerful is our victor, Christ Jesus. And so we set our eyes upon the cross, even as we come to this his holy word. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. There are three passages. The first is from 1 John, then Galatians 5, and then 1 Timothy, all seeking to depict the battle that we are in and the schemes of the evil one. 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Galatians 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And then from 1 Timothy 4 verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Father in heaven, as we open your word, we thank you that it's yours. From the beginning to the end, we're confident that it's your word. It has your authority. And its original language is inerrant, infallible. It is for us and it feeds us. In your word, we are taught that it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. What an encouragement. So would you do those things even now, Holy Spirit? Open our eyes to see. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, we've been walking through this series, and the reason is because it's God's word that tells us what it is we fight or who it is we fight. There are schemes. Children, go ahead and raise your hand so we can get you this quest. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. Send the workers out. Um, there are schemes that this enemy is using. And the schemes are clear in Scripture. There's a lot that we can say about what Scripture says. But many times we want to go beyond Scripture. And that's called conjecture, which isn't necessarily wrong until you say that's authoritative. And you've got to be careful. So in this study, I have wanted to stay in the lanes of what Scripture clearly says about this enemy. And that's why certain things I'm saying over and over again, so that you will know that is in the Word of God. And the reason that's so important is because the first and primary scheme of Satan is to take the Word of God out of your hands. Let me say that again. The first and primary scheme of Satan is to take the word of God out of your hands. In other words, to disarm you. Last week, we were looking at Genesis 3 and Matthew 4. You see that work of the enemy right in Genesis. The very first question in the Bible is not from God. It's from Satan. He's in the form of a serpent, and he comes to Eve, and he says, did God really say? Satan is going after the word of God, the authority of God. And that's how he always works. No matter what temptation comes towards us, it's always going to be centered on the word of God. Did God really say? His ability and his desire to disarm us is great. It begins with an authority that he himself, Satan, possesses over us. In Ephesians 2, we are told that all mankind is under the power of this one. It says that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among the sons of disobedience. Well, that's Satan. We weren't spiritually sick. We weren't just a little bit off. We were spiritually dead. And we were in submission to the prince of the power of the air. Therefore, as it relates to the word of God, we had disbelief. Disbelief is where everyone starts. His desire would be to keep all there. That people, no people, would ever believe that this, from Genesis to Revelation, truly is the word of God. God's inspired, God-breathed word that's alive and active. But something happens along the way for those who are part of God's elect, his people, his children. They suddenly, at varying ages, say, I believe it. And in order for them to say, I believe it, and I trust in Jesus because he is presented here as the one true Savior, an illuminating work of the Spirit has to take place. 
And that illuminating work is actually a resurrection work that causes a dead heart that wasn't beating for God to suddenly now beat for God. And if you're in Christ, you would today say, I am a Christian, I've trusted Jesus. That's because that work took place behind the scenes. And you said, I embrace him. You experience what we might call, or often call, irresistible grace. And it's awesome. But just because you moved at whatever age it was from disbelief to belief, he still seeks to disarm you. He still seeks to cause you to put the word of God down. He still says to you constantly, did God really say? So how does he do it? How does he seek to disarm us? Well, after disbelief, if you're in Christ, that's no longer your primary issue. He still uses doubt. It's no longer doubt in the whole thing or doubt even necessarily that the whole thing is true, but it's doubt as it relates to specific passages or specific promises. Doubt often leads people to denying the very things that Scripture says. And these are not necessarily horrific denials. They might be what seems small. Yet in that smallness, this grand sense of doubt moves towards a place, a posture, where people are no longer truly resting in the promises of God and who he says he is. The enemy wants to knock the word of God out of your life. He wants to disarm you. And it makes sense. In the spiritual armament passage of Ephesians 6, we are given many pieces, a helmet of salvation, a breastplate of righteousness, a belt of truth, armor from the head to the toe. Yet, every soldier wouldn't want to be just armed with a defensive posture, but also with a weapon. And so God, in the spiritual armament text, gives us a weapon. And the weapon is this. It's the word of God. It's called the sword of the spirit. So if you are going against an enemy and you have an ability to take whatever weapon the enemy could use against you away, you could make them drop whatever it was they could harm you with, victory is essentially assured. I mean, how fun to take on that kind of enemy. They can't really hurt me unless they ram me with their helmet or their breastplate. Satan wants to disarm you. It starts with disbelief. Once disbelief is over and you actually believe and have trusted Jesus, it's doubt. Doubt leads to denying things like the truth of his power and his presence, his promises, which leads often to distrusting what he says. Julian Russell contacted today, Robbie mentioned, God is sovereign over that hurricane and he's good. The hurricane isn't good. But God is good. Christians can say that because God's word says he's good and does good. But real evil exists. Real storms come in nature and internally, in families and in churches, in places of work. And when it comes, it's real easy for us to drop the word of God. Not by saying we don't believe that it's true, but we drop it by not really resting in its promises. Sometimes we drop the word of God when it becomes dry. Many of you have experienced that. It's January, you got a one-year Bible, 
you're excited about your new reading plan, and then you hit a wall somewhere in February, and you're in Leviticus. <laughs> and suddenly, the word of God becomes dry. Each day with Jesus is not necessarily sweeter than the day before. Many young people think of this book and their immediate thought goes to boredom or rules instead of life and answers. They think there are many questions and mysteries that aren't connected and there's so many things that aren't consistent so they begin to move towards distrust many times without really seeing how the whole thing's put together. The enemy wants to disarm. He wants to disarm by making it boring and irrelevant in our minds or simply convincing us that we don't have the right heart towards it. Sometimes people go through seasons where they're just not feeling it, whatever it is. And when that happens, sometimes we say, I'm gonna wait until that fire returns. I'm gonna pray for that fire. Don't put this down and pray for fire. This is the fire. Stay in it and trust God to make it burn. Satan wants you to drop it so that you would be disarmed. It's the sword of the spirit. If he can't make those things happen, then he certainly moves towards the temptation to disobey. Whatever it is that the word of God says, and your flesh is battling against that because you desire something it says you shouldn't desire, but it's a real desire. And you and I do what Robbie said at the introduction of our prayer of confession. We want something else. We want something more. I remember when Robbie, when we were working together with the youth staff, said when he was teaching the group of high school students, Whatever we do, we do because in that moment, it makes sense to us. Behind that, though, is an enemy at work who's saying, did God really say, fill in the blank, whatever it is. And when God is questioned and his word is questioned, the doctrine of the demons is at play. It's an interesting sermon title but it comes exactly out of the text from 1 Timothy 4.1. What is the doctrines of demons? Doctrines of demons are centered on one thing, that which is false. The doctrines of demons is about false teaching, about false religion. It's about false security and false assurance. The doctrines of demon is centered on taking this and offering something else. If the enemy can't make you drop this completely, then he's gonna seek to use parts of it against you where you would begin to believe false things about it. And he's very active. False teachings, false religions, false securities, false assurances, assurances never manifest themselves or, or most of the time don't manifest themselves as these blatant disregard for God. There aren't many places that say church of Satan, 
come and learn the doctrines of demons on their billboards. But there are many places that look just like this, where the doctrines of demons are proclaimed week after week. This is really important. Satan loves the word almost. Dr. Dwight Pentecost, who wrote Your Adversary the Devil in 1969, said, Satan's masterpiece is not what you think. Satan's masterpiece, and I'm going to put it in today's language, is not the crack dealer. It's not the vile disobedience to every law that you see out there. That's his too. But his masterpiece is the minister who says almost everything right, almost everything right, but just leaves out Jesus alone. And that temptation is going to come to this pulpit too just as it has throughout history, where people who worship here or pastors who serve here who will only be hired if they say they believe all of this is true are going to be tempted to be disarmed by saying, I can't preach on that subject or that passage because if I do, the costs will be too great for this church and for the people who come to this church, which actually make up the church, it happens. It doesn't happen fast. It happens subtly, where someone says, don't preach on Romans 1. Don't preach out of that Old Testament book. Tear that page out. Nobody would ever say that, would they? But that's what they're saying. And that's how Satan dilutes the word of God. And when he dilutes the word of God, he causes his people to drop the word of God. And it's not this massive dump of poison in the water. It's a drop. Yet it poisons still the same. And people die. Satan wants to disarm us. He wants the word of God out of our life. And the doctrines of demons are centered on things that are false. Almost right, but false. The more truth an error contains, the more dangerous it is. The more truth an error contains, the more dangerous it is. And that's why we must always be careful that whatever our experience is with the word of God in our relationship with Christ, it can never be in contradiction to the word of God. And yet that's one of the ways Satan seeks to disarm his church as well. That suddenly experiences that I'm having that are extra biblical begin to have the same authority as those that are clearly biblical. Never let the word of God be submissive to an experience that you're having that is not clearly biblical. That's really, really important. At the same time, if that's not the way you're going to be tempted, 
He would move you down the path of, you should never experience power in Christ. You should never experience profound illumination. You should never experience freedom that might come through these different things, through these different experiences. That's how clever Satan is. But this is the anchor. This is the anchor. This is the word of God which tells us about the word of God who anchors us, the rock. So how does he do that? Well, it's through seduction. What a powerful word and a very biblical word. Look in your bulletin to 1 John 2. John writes, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the, from the Father, but is from the world. This is a passage where we get the idea of the world, the flesh, and the devil. So here's what we know about the devil. Repeat with me. He's roaming. You're catching on? He's real. And he wants to devour you. Somebody said me. And that's right. He doesn't just want to devour me. He wants to devour anyone who is a someone. And you're a someone. This isn't a passage where you say, yep, I see this happening in our culture. I see this happening in the young people. I see this happening in old people. I see in the politics. This is his intent. And it is devour, to devour you. His seduction the world and the flesh is very real. The world simply means the system of the world. The world has been lied to, but they believe it's the truth. So anything that the world goes after that they think will give them life or give them security, they're going to go after. And they should. It's the truth, they believe. The world's been lied to. Romans 1, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped, and you only worship what you love, they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who has forever praised. So the world system is just simply offering whatever it thinks is going to make people happy, secure, fulfilled. Many of those things aren't actually evil including money, but the love of money is. And there's a lot of love of money in a community like ours, in a city like ours, in a country like ours. And the love of money seduces us. And in another part of scripture, it's called a snare. The enemy also uses not just the system of the world, but our very flesh. We were created with desires. Many of those desires are shown in Galatians 5. The dark desires revealed in 5:19 through 21. 
And because those dark desires have been there, those fleshly desires, Paul speaks of the battle that exists between the Spirit, capital S, and the flesh. And that battle is very real. It leads us to doing things that we don't want to do. And even the Apostle Paul said, I do what I don't want to do, and that which I do want to do, I don't do. So the battle is very, very, very real. The enemy wants us to surrender in our flesh to our flesh. He wants us to surrender to the system of the world. That's the scheme he puts before us. And when we do, we drop the word of God. As he moves forward with that seduction, those temptations that come, he's constantly saying, did God really say? Did God really say? And we need to respond with the truth. Oftentimes, what then takes place is a snare or a stronghold. A snare or a stronghold is when someone is trapped, stuck. And Satan wants so much for his enemies, those who are in Christ, to find themselves in a place where they are trapped. When we are in a snare, trapped, trapped in looking at things we shouldn't look at, thinking about things we shouldn't think about, spending in ways we shouldn't spend, talking in ways we shouldn't talk, watching things that we shouldn't watch, reading things we shouldn't read. Satan is seducing us to think that this is what's going to ultimately make me happy or make me secure, if only in this moment. And then when we succumb to that seduction, when we give in to that temptation, when we sin, he's the one who's there then to accuse and mock and yet continue to deceive. And underneath that great deception is this, that you can't tell anyone. You can't tell anyone that you struggle with this. You can't tell anyone that this is your snare. So what you must do is focus on yourself and how you're going to set yourself free. And when you begin to think that way, you need to know you're not thinking rightly. You're thinking falsely. You're practicing false religion. You're actually operating out of a false identity. There's nothing about setting ourselves free that is remotely Christian. Nothing. And that's where he wants you to get stuck. Because in that place of stuckness, in that snare, whether it's your pride or lust or materialism or the boasting of things that he speaks of in 1 John 2, he wants to keep you there. And that which was promised to you as life is now revealing itself slowly as death. That's a snare.
I told this story not long ago about a friend of mine named Adam who's a youth pastor in Nebraska. He's having lunch with a young boy who's struggling with lust and he's looking at things he shouldn't look at regularly. His phone is one of the vehicles by which those images come. And the young man is exhausted and so frightened by the battle and he feels like he's lost, but he finally has had the courage to say, I, I can't keep doing this. Praise God. I can't keep doing this. That includes, I can't stop looking what's there, but I also can't get myself out. And he took his phone and he dropped it in the glass of Coke or water or whatever it was. I'm done. I didn't use this for that illustration. It's just here to drink. <laughs> he let go of that which was killing him. There are a lot of people like him looking at me right now. And everyone that's looking at me is the target of our enemy's desire to devour. He wants to disarm you. He does it by seducing you. And he wants you to believe that you could never have the courage to come forward and say, pray for me. Or tell somebody in your small group, or your spouse, or a friend, or a pastor, or a Sunday community leader, I'm trapped. That's how he works. The truth is, you don't have to be trapped. God has the power to set you free. And he demonstrated that power when he sent his son Jesus to walk upon this earth, where he would be seduced face to face by this evil enemy who was roaming around seeking to devour him. This second Adam faced down the enemy using the sword of the Spirit, using the means of grace and prayer when he cried out to his father, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, but not your will be, not my will be done, your will be done. And it was the Father's will to put him on the cross, to hang him there until he died, so that just before he died, he could say, it is finished. In that death blow to Satan, though he continues to roam until Christ returns, was given. I'll talk more about that next week. Satan was nailed to a cross, stuck on the cross, so that all who would trust in his life and work, his death, his resurrection, his reign, could live forever in the freedom of knowing Jesus. Right now, Satan is saying, did God really say? Is that really enough? 
Does he really have the power to set you free? Will he, even if he does? And that's where we go to his word. And his word reveals to us that he's the rock. And his word reveals to us that those who build on this rock will stand against no matter what storm comes. Our eyes as believers in Jesus are not really to be focused on Satan or on demons or even on the snares that they seek to put before us, but upon the one who's victorious over him, the one who really is leading us, the one whose cross our eyes must be fixed on, for there is the place where he gave the victory. Jesus Christ is going to return. And between now and then, he is giving us everything we need to fight this enemy. Next Sunday, I'm going to preach on our posture in that battle. The sermon title is Rest, Resist, Repeat. Between now and then, fix your eyes on him. Lift high the cross of Jesus and trust him to set you free. Lord Jesus, if these are new words for people who came to this place today, I pray that they would embrace them and see that it is your holy word from which these words come and that they would reach out to you for salvation right now. Lord, if there are those in our midst who feel deeply trapped and terrified to tell someone, I pray that as we sing, they would not just go through the motions, but would be eager to simply trust you and they would cry out for help and that that help would come. We love you and thank you for this time and space that you've given us this day. Minister to us now, even as we sing praises to you and fix our eyes on the cross of Jesus. We pray in your name, amen.